Why don't you grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and let's turn to the passage that Jay just read, uh, Matthew chapter 8, and uh, we will start in verse 5 as we continue uh, getting back to our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, taking a look at the power of Christ uh, over distance. The power of Christ over distance. We are freshly back into our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8 verses uh, 5 through 13. I trust that you're there close to it. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, would you uh, again be with us this morning? May your spirit uh, be at work in our hearts and our lives. Father, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive your word to us. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you have given us this wonderful illustration of your power, of your power as king, uh, your power as Lord, your power as Savior, and your power as, as, the, as the God of gods, uh, that you even have a power uh, to heal over a great distance. You are indeed a powerful king. So be well pleased as we learn about you and about ourselves and about heaven and about hell and about you being the key. We ask it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, there's a story told of a former uh, governor of the state of Massachusetts. His name was Christian Herter, and uh, he was running hard for uh, a second term. So he wanted to to be uh, reelected, and he was on the campaign. And as campaigns go, he had had a very busy morning chasing votes. He did not have time for lunch, and so he had an event scheduled that afternoon at a local church, and they were going to be uh, having a barbecue for him. And so it was getting late, and he was just starved. He was famished, and so he was heading down the serving line, eagerly anticipating his food, uh, and he held out his plate to the woman uh, who was serving the chicken. And she uh, put one piece of chicken uh, on his plate, turned to the next person in line to to give them their chicken, and the governor said, excuse me, ma'am, if you don't mind, I haven't had lunch, Uh, can I have another piece of chicken? To which the woman replied, I'm sorry, Uh, I've been told that I'm only supposed to give each person one piece of chicken. To which the governor replied, but but ma'am, I'm, 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 very, I'm very hungry. I'm starving. Can I please just have one more piece of chicken? To which uh, the woman replied, well, I, I told you, as I told you before, I, I can just give, give one on. So, so please, please move along. And, and at that point, the governor, who was m- typically a modest man, decided to sort of throw his weight around. He said, ma'am, ma'am, do you realize who I am? Do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. To which the woman then promptly uh, responded, Sir, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken, so move along. (laughs) Now, there was a woman who understood the proper sphere and use of authority, right? She was the woman in charge of the chicken, so move along. Well, today, as we return to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8, we are going to learn, uh, hear a story of another person who also understood how authority worked. Last week, if you were with us, we began a new major section in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. You can see it behind me. We, we call chapters 8 and 9 the power of the king because, really, Jesus' power as the king of Israel and the king of the world is put on display. If you recall, each, uh, each of the sections here begins with a, a series of three miracles, right? And last week in verses 1 through 8, we saw Jesus heal a leper, right? Demonstrating that he has the power over defilement, right? He he. he He healed this Jewish leper and reveals to us that he has power over defilement, both physical defilement and, more importantly, spiritual defilement as well. So, number two 
miracle this morning found in chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, we're going to discover that Jesus not only has power over defilement, but he also has power over distance, as he is going to heal a Roman centurion's servant by simply saying a word. So here's the general flow and outline of of this section. First of all, in verses 5 through 7, we will see Jesus uh, display uh, and have a conversation with what uh, I'll call him a noble Roman, a noble Roman citizen. Next, we're going to see that that Roman is going to ask Jesus for a favor, a novel request in verses 8 and 9. Next, Jesus then is going to close the section with a notable response in verses 10 through 13. How will Jesus respond to this Gentile Roman soldier's request to heal his servant? Well, we'll find out in just a moment. Let's begin starting in verse 5 as Matthew gives us a portrayal, a picture, if you will, of a noble Roman. Verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he asked, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. If you look at the the map that's behind me, get a little picture of where this event took place. Here we see Jesus entering the town of Capernaum. It was a a city on on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Most scholars believe that Capernaum was likely very close to the location where Jesus had just given the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, What we find out is that this city of Capernaum was actually a a significant city in the region. It was an important garrison city for uh, for the, the, the nation of Rome in that day. So then it's really no surprise as Jesus comes off of the mountainside and enters the city of Capernaum that in one sense he is approached by a Roman soldier, right? It was a garrison town. There would be lots of Roman soldiers running around, including a, a man that the text calls a centurion. Now, a centurion was a certain type of Roman soldier. Essentially, he was a man in charge of a hundred other Roman soldiers, hence the name centurion, right? So he was a man in authority, right? He had people underneath him. But we also know that he was a man under authority. Of course, he had people above him, if you will. And what's kind of unusual here is, if you recall last week, um, we're going to see this this theme of outcasts that Jesus is going to heal. Last week, who did Jesus heal? Last week, we saw Jesus heal a leper, right? Certainly an outcast in the mind of the Jews in his day. And now we're going to see that Jesus is going to heal the servant of a Roman centurion, a a sort of different type of outcast. See, the leper was considered to be outside of the camp by the Jews, but the centurion, see, he was outside of the covenant, right? He was a Gentile. And so now a different type of outcast approaches Jesus. It's interesting, though, when you look at uh, the centurions in the New Testament, um, they are always portrayed positively. You wouldn't expect that. They were sort of looked down upon by the Jewish people. But in the New Testament, centurions, like the one we'll see here, uh, as we see in Luke chapter 7, are always uh, uh, spoken of well. And this one is in well. You don't have, as well, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 7, we sort of get a parallel account. And in Luke chapter 7, we, we are told that this man, that this centurion, loved 
the Jewish people, that he had a heart and a passion for the Jewish people. And we are also told that he even built the Jews in that city a synagogue. That tells us something about his commitment to the Jewish people. It also tells us something about his influence, right? If he built the Jewish synagogue, he was likely what? He was likely wealthy, right? So this is a a noble Roman indeed, right? He was a centurion. He had a place of authority. He was likely wealthy and he loved the Jewish people. So this is the man that approaches Jesus, but he had a problem that he couldn't fix, right? His servant, his beloved servant, most likely uh, this would be like a personal assistant, right? Somebody who would go with him everywhere he went, uh, sort of like a secretary, a personal assistant, um, and he loved this man. But this man, we are told, uh, was, was at his house and was paralyzed, suffering terribly. And so this man had a problem. And he had heard about this Jewish Messiah, possibly, this Jewish man who was performing incredible miracles. And so he approaches Jesus asking for help. The fact that Jesus calls this man Lord, he approaches him and he calls him Lord, might be indicative that he saw a little bit of something different in Jesus. In Greek, it could just be a a, a polite title like, sir, will you help me? But it, it very well could be that this man believed something about Jesus. That when he came to Jesus and calls him Lord, that he doesn't just mean dear sir. He actually might be approaching Jesus as the divine son of God. We'll see his belief in who Jesus was is actually going to be developed as the story goes along. This is an astounding thing, folks. We have the Jewish king, right, being approached by a Gentile Roman soldier hated by the Jews who had another Gentile servant who is sick, and Jesus is approached to heal this man. It's astounding. So Jesus hears his request, and then we see his response in verse 7. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? This is fascinating. Clearly, Jesus doesn't care about being made ritually or ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the Jews. Because the Jews thought to enter, even darken the door of a Gentile's house would make you unclean. So Jews wouldn't do that. They wouldn't enter a Gentile's house. And yet Jesus says, one, I can heal him. And two, do you want me to do that? Do you want me to enter into your house? Just like he didn't care about being ceremonially unclean. Remember last week he touched the leper? Well, here he offers to sort of do the same thing. He cares deeply about this man and about his servant. He's willing even to go into his home. Well, in verses 5 through 7, we get this picture of a, of a noble Roman. In verses 8 and 9, we see that he has a novel request. The section begins in verse 8 with the man offering a bit of confession, a humble confession in verse 8, which then leads him to make a comparison in verse 9. There's a confession in verse 8 that leads him to draw a comparison in verse 9. So first, let's take a look at the man's confession in verse 8. The text says that the centurion replied, Lord, 
I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. This is amazing, right? Despite Jesus' willingness to break tradition and to enter into this Gentile's home, the man acts in humility, does he not? This is a humble confession. He says, Lord, you aren't, I'm not worthy for you to enter into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come. First of all, he's like, I know that Jews consider our homes unclean, so I'm not even going to ask you to do that. Certainly an act of humility. But second, notice, notice the reason why. He's like, you don't even have to come to my house to heal my servant, but just say the what? The word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. This reveals that he believes that Jesus had sufficient authority, correct? He believed that Jesus had sufficient authority simply to say the words, be healed of his servant, though he wasn't in the same uh, geographical area of his servant and that it would happen. Friends, this is an amazing statement of faith, is it not? It is an amazing statement of faith, nonetheless, of a Gentile to a Jewish Messiah. It's amazing. He believes that Jesus has the power to save his servant just by saying the word. It tells us something about what he believed about Jesus and who he believed Jesus was. When he calls him Lord, if he simply meant sir, that doesn't make sense, right? He, when he says Lord, he believes something about who Jesus is. He believes that he's not just an ordinary guy, man, that he is the God man, the Jewish king. Second, his confession in verse 8 leads to a comparison in verse 9. He's going to compare his experience as a centurion, in a sense, with Jesus's authority as the very son of God. Notice verse 9. He's going to explain why he believes that Jesus doesn't have to come to his house, but can just say the word and his servant can be healed. Verse 9. For I myself, right? It's an explanation he's giving. For I myself am a man under authority. Notice that. He is a man under authority with soldiers under me. So friends, what is he saying about himself? He says, I am a man under authority, so there is a greater authority over me. But he's saying, I have soldiers underneath me. I also am a man not only under authority, but I am a man with authority. Correct? I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. What is this man saying? Why did this man believe that Jesus could heal his servant with just a word? Simply put, it was because he believed that Jesus was a man both under authority and a man in authority, just like himself. He talks here about his own experience as a centurion, right? He had authority over the authority of commanders and of Rome itself. So he was under authority, but because he was under authority, what did that give him? 
that gave him his authority, right? So that he could then command those that were underneath him. He talks about his own experience and then he likens it to the authority of Jesus, does he not? He says, Jesus, you're just like me, right? I am under authority and you are under authority. So let me ask you a question. In what sense was Jesus under authority? Because that's what this man clearly believes. Maybe he was able to hear some of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was able to hear of Jesus speak of God as his heavenly father. We don't know exactly how he came to believe this. But this man had his theology correct. He believed that Jesus was under the authority of his heavenly father, correct? And because he was a man acting under authority, that he then had authority himself to do miracles and wonders, right? It's, It's like he's saying, listen, one under authority and one with authority doesn't need to be present to get something done, right? It can be carried out even at a distance. So... He believed that Jesus, too, was a man under authority and with authority. Therefore, this man could say, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, this is great faith indeed. And to that faith, Jesus gives us, in verses 10 through 13, a notable response. Notice what Jesus says. Now, friends, I have to say something here. Pretty much in every miracle, save one or two, in all of the Gospels, including the miracles that we have seen and will see, all of them have a point. The Gospel writers record the miracles to emphasize a a theological point, to make uh, an emphasis here. It's not about the miracle or how it's done, per se. It is about the teaching, often, that comes after the miracle. And we're going to see that here in verses 10 through 13. Notice first in verse 10. Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Friends, this is a damning and indicting statement indeed, is it not? He says, no one in Israel including those who were following him that he was speaking to at that very moment, had a faith and an understanding of who Jesus was as the Jewish Messiah, like this Gentile soldier did. And here Jesus makes it clear what he demands and what he desires from each and every person, whether Jew or Greek, right? Whether, whether Jew or Gentile, he desires faith and trust in him as the very son of God. Dr. Dr. Constable gets it right here when he says this. The greatness of the centurion's faith was due to his perception of Jesus' relationship to God. It was not that he believed Jesus could heal from a remote distance. It's, it's fascinating. In the Gospels, Jesus is said to, quote, marvel or to be amazed at two things. One of them is here, right? This man saw the faith of this Gentile and is like, I marvel at that kind of faith. I am amazed at this kind of faith. But do you know what else Jesus is said to be uh, amazed at or to marvel at in the Gospels? In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says that he is amazed or, 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 or he marvels at his own people's, the Jewish people's, unbelief. 
I'm amazed at this Gentile's faith, and I am amazed at my own people who do not believe in me. Second, this leads to Jesus' message from the centurion's faith. He marvels at the man's faith, but he wants to teach us a lesson from it. And that lesson is very clearly found in verses 11 through 12. The message from the centurion's faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is astounding. Unequivocally, Jesus assures those with faith like the centurion a place in his eternal kingdom. You see that? He unequivocally assures those who approach him with faith like this Gentile, like this Roman centurion, a place in his eternal kingdom. This man, this story, is found in three out of the four Gospels. It's significant. All the Gospel writers save one, write about it because it's important. It's, it's supposed to teach us something. Jesus says here that this Gentile will be the first of many Gentiles, I presume like me and you, right? The first of many Gentiles who will come from all over the world, from China and India and Africa and all over the place to join the patriarchs at the great feast in the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll take our seat there, Right? Um, we sort of had a tradition growing up. Uh, at Thanksgiving time, I would gather, uh, we would gather often with both sets of grandparents, but I distinctly remember my, on my dad's side, we would often gather, and as was tradition, uh, because there were so many of us, there was an adult table, and then there was a children's table. Maybe you do the same. So the adult table, of course, was where the big people sat, and the children's table is where everybody who couldn't behave like an adult got to sit, right? And it was often like a card table or something. And uh, while the adults used the nice china, we used paper towels and, pa- you know, paper plates and plastic forks, right? It was the children's table. However, um, when one of us children got old enough and mature enough um, to move up to the adult's table, then we got promoted, right? We got to join the adult table at some point in our life. But it was always made very clear to us in that moment. I think I was like 15 or 16 before I got the privileges of eating at the adult table. It was made clear to each of the grandchildren that if we wanted to join the adult table, we had to act like adults. And that if we did not act like an adult, then guess what would happen to our, our spot at the table? It would be forfeited, right? And the next person in line would then come and take our place. Friends, what is Jesus saying here in verses 11 and 12? He's saying that there will be Gentiles from all over the world that will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But notice what verse 12 says. But the subjects of the kingdom, who's he talking about? He's talking about the Jewish people in context here. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, here we have a great reversal being uh, described to us. Places were, that were reserved in the banqueting table in the kingdom for God's covenant people, Jesus says, the Jews, will be forfeited. 
They will lose their place in the kingdom of heaven because they reject Jesus as their savior. And he's saying the Gentiles who are not originally a part of the covenant will take those places. They will take their seats in the kingdom of God. Very bluntly, Jesus says that if Jews, right, who he calls subjects of the kingdom, fail to respond to him, they will not enter the kingdom and they will be cast into hell. The Jewish people associated weeping with great sorrow, of course. But, and they also associated the gnashing of teeth with great anger. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus is clearly drawing a line in the sand. He's saying that those Jew or Gentile who fail to personally respond to him as the Son of God, sent by his Father, we know to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, will not be at the table in the kingdom of heaven. Some will be at the table who respond rightly to Jesus, and some will not be at the table who do not. Ironically, the Jews thought that Gentiles were children of Gehenna. It was a picture of, of, the, of the, the trash, the sort of the, where all the junk went, and they set it aflame a on fire, and, and they thought Gentiles were sort of children of hell. They couldn't possibly be at Messiah's feast, but what does Jesus say here? They will be at that feast if they place their faith in Jesus. But the Jews who rejected him and anybody else who rejects Jesus as well will miss the party. The point then of this miracle is to warn both Israel and all people that unbelief will disqualify you from the place, from your place in the kingdom of heaven while belief and repentance in Jesus will gain you a place in the kingdom of heaven. The second miracle then ends in verse 13. Jesus affirms that he will do what this man's faith desires. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. I want to close this morning by taking a look at finally a number of realities. Three application points, if you will. Three realities that this, this, this little scene here points us towards. Number one, the centurion is meant to be an example. His faith in Jesus is meant to be an example for us, right? He was a Gentile. Most of us in here, if not all of us, are Gentiles. And Paul says this in Ephesians 2.12, that before we as Gentiles come to place our faith in Jesus, that we are, quote, separate from Christ. We are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We are strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Friends, that is how every human being is born into this world. We are separated from Christ. We are excluded from the covenant promises. We are strangers from God. We have no hope of eternal life, and we are without God in the world. That is the natural state of human beings. But when we, like this, this Gentile does, come to repentance and place our faith in Jesus— What happens? Well, Paul goes on in Ephesians 2.13 to say, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you are a Gentile here today, you likely are, and you've placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ, this guy is your big brother. He is your example. He shows us the way to approach God through faith in Jesus. A couple really key uh, teaching points as we close. 
The centurion's faith is significant, but Jesus wants us to hear his teachings based upon this man's faith. Reality number two, heaven is real. The kingdom of heaven is real. We don't need a book or a movie series to be assured of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is real. So let me ask you something. When Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west and they'll take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, do you think he's just speaking metaphorically here? Do you think he's just kind of like trying to summarize and tell a a, a fable without it being real? I don't think so. Friends, there will be a heavenly feast someday. There will be a heavenly feast in the kingdom of God, and real people will be there. You might be there. I pray that you will be there. I trust that I will be there. I've placed my faith in Jesus. Real people will be there. Friends, if you are a Christian today, rest assured that your place is waiting for you and that you will sit down, if if you will, at the table and you will have a conversation with Abraham. And you will say, tell me about that incident with Sarah in Egypt. Why did you do it that way? You might sit down and have a conversation with Isaac or with Jacob. Friends, this is a reality that Jesus speaks of. And he affirms that only those who come to him in repentance and faith will be in that place. There is a certainty of glory and an assurance of those who come to him like this centurion that we too will take our place. But friends, know that just as assuredly as heaven is real, so is hell. Jesus talks about them in the same breath. Jesus talks about heaven and hell in the same breath. For Jesus, there is no such thing as heaven but not hell. Friends, hear me clearly. More importantly, hear Jesus clearly. So don't be fooled by some slick-talking so-called pastor or author or anybody else who tells you otherwise. Jesus does not believe that. He says, many will come and take their places in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out. And how does he describe this place? He describes it as a place of darkness, he says there will be weeping, which is, which is an indication of sorrow, sorrow. But he says in that place there will be gnashing of teeth. Friends, many people think that that's like, oh, I'm so, it's painful, so I gnash my teeth. It could be that, but I don't think that's what it means. Jews generally thought that the gnashing of teeth was in anger. When I'm angry at you, I do this. What is Jesus teaching about people who are in hell? They're not repentant. They will not be repentant. They will never be repentant. They are angry at God. They remain in their sin. And they remain in their unrepentant state. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. In closing, the real question that we must all answer is, is, is which character, if you will, in this passage, which set of characters in this miracle setting are we like? There is the the centurion who places his faith in Jesus and Jesus says, you're going to have a place in heaven because you've come to me in faith. And he uses that faith to say, but there's also going to be people. In that context, he's speaking of Jewish people, but it, it doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile alike. He's saying, there are also going to be people who reject me. 
There will also be people who will not have play, have faith in me. And he says, they will go into the darkness. They will be thrown out, if you will. So friends, do you know which group you're a part of? Do you know which, which you are? If you're a part of the first, then rejoice. You have a table and there's a place at that table for you. But friends, let me warn you. If you have not repented and trusted in anything else other than the saving work of Jesus, now is the time to do it. Right now is the day of salvation because it's one or the other. There is no in-between. I'm going to pray and we'll be done. But if you know for sure that you are more like the Jews in this context, then why don't you pray with me now and we can get that right. Let's pray to close our time together, if you will.